0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 97. Today we speak with Scott Oliphant about Christian essentialism. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we want to thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is our 97th episode. We're very excited to be back, and today I have Nick Batsig with me. He's a church planter in Richmond Hill, Georgia. How are you doing, Nick? Very well. How are you, Camden? I'm doing very well, and we have an an excellent guest today. We're very excited to speak with Dr. Scott Oliphant, who is Professor of Apologetics and Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Thanks for joining us again, Dr. Oliphant.
1: Good to be here, guys.
0: Yeah, and uh, as Nick already said, my name is Camden Busey, and uh, we've been doing this show for a while. We had Dr. Oliphant back in, uh, I think it was episode 36, so we're very pleased to have him back on now in episode 96 to talk about a very important topic. Uh, We're going to be speaking in the area of uh, doctrine of God, talking about something called Christian essentialism, and we'll uh, define that here in just a moment. Uh, Dr. Oliphant, as we get started, has written a book titled Reasons for Faith. Uh, it's an excellent philosophical-minded uh, book, but it deals with is- apologetic issues. It also deals with uh, doctrine of God or theology-proper issues, trying to interface a solid conservative reformed understanding of God with some of the, the- theological and philosophical challenges that are out there. Dr. Oliphant, as we, as we start, um, many of our listeners are familiar with this book, uh, but for those that are not, and also for the sake of just introducing our topic today, uh, could you provide for us just a sketch of some of the major issues that you interacted with in reasons for faith?
1: Yeah. Um, I think one, one of the things I was, I was trying to do there um, came out of a, um, a basic frustration I, I've had in, um, in working with uh, philosophy for a number of years. Uh, first of all, just to qualify, I'm not a philosopher, and, and uh, philosophers out there who, who are listening and who may have read my work will say a hearty amen to that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not claiming to be a philosopher, but because of the uh, way in which theology and philosophy interface uh, historically... I've uh, been interested in in philosophy, particularly in the area of apologetics as well. So um, one of my frustrations has been in reading um, a good amount of material, particularly in the philosophy of religion, is that um, very, very few who deal with philosophy of religion, uh, I think, deal with it from a Christian context or standpoint. Um, And, you know, the reasons for that are varied, I think, but uh, fundamentally, the reason I think, is that um, most have been convinced that the way you have to do philosophy is uh, by way of a a presupposition of the uh, neutrality of reason. And once you get into that, I think, uh, and and assert that sort of thing, then it is uh, by and large, and this is a generalization, but I think it holds for the vast majority, it is illegitimate then to appeal to biblical revelation. So one of the things I was trying to do is is to uh, address uh, the question, uh, both uh, historically but also uh, conceptually, what is the relationship of theology to philosophy? And um, the subtitle of the book is uh, Philosophy in the Service of Theology, and I, I try to set forth that relationship in just that way, that if philosophy is going to be done properly, it has to be done from a Christian context and Christian standpoint. Now, that's not to say, of course, just the regular qualifier doesn't mean everything that's um, done out there is bad, necessarily bad, because it's not done from that perspective. Um, There are all kinds of elements that play into that uh, relative to common grace and people being in the image of God and borrowed capital and uh, all the things that we already are aware of. But uh, the point I was trying to make is that uh, a a truly Christian philosophy needs to be truly Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, As obvious as that sounds, you're not going to find much of that out there. So <clears throat> I was trying to address that question. I was also, uh, interested in the apologetic uh, aspect of that, um, of, of philosophy generally and of that approach. So what I, what I set out to do, um, and I, I got my inspiration, uh, in doing this, um, as I say in the book, partly from, um, Van Inwagen, Peter Van Inwagen, who teaches at Notre Dame, has written a little primer, uh, introductory book on metaphysics. And in that book, uh, in wagon makes this, uh, I think, startling statement that after a few thousand years of dealing with the uh, topic of metaphysics, there is um, no agreed upon consensus as to what metaphysics is and, and, and what the uh, issues actually are. Mm. Now, that's, that's a fascinating admission from, from a man who's writing a book on metaphysics and, and is intensely interested in it and himself uh, quite capable in that area. But he's saying that uh, after 4,000 years, there's no consensus. Now, part of what interested me in that is that it it feeds into um, Van Til's approach in apologetics, which is sometimes summarized as uh, setting forth the impossibility of the contrary. So what what Van Enwagen is admitting to, I think in part at least, is that the topic of metaphysics cannot be approached in a way that's going to be helpful uh, unless it's approached from the standpoint of biblical revelation.
0: Now, it's funny, or, yeah, not to interrupt, but it's funny that the current trends in in philosophy of religion, a lot of people are, are heading down a post-metaphysical route. They kind of, oh, yeah. they, they kind of sense well, these difficulties and just say, okay, well, let's get rid of metaphysics. Exactly. Right. Yep. No
1: question about it. And some of the analytic philosophers are trying to reinsert um, a, a metaphysical uh, context into discussions. And I think you know, I've been doing that over the past few decades. And you, you sense Van Inwagen's frustration because he says in that, in that quote, he says, I have no idea why this is the case, but I have to admit it is the case, that we just simply don't have a consensus on this in any way, shape, or form. So what he says in there uh, is, in effect, uh, you can start anywhere in your discussion of metaphysics and begin to to approach the subject uh, from a particular standpoint. Now I I use that as a springboard to say well if this is true how about we start with uh, Christian revelation there's there's a new idea in the history of philosophy <laughs> let's do metaphysics from the standpoint of Christian revelation since there's no consensus you, you can't cry foul and let's see if that's going to offer any help in in uh, trying to understand what the nature of ultimate reality actually is so I, I kind of approach that from that perspective and 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 enter the phrase sort of from the impossibility the contrary perspective 4000 years of failure and so let's let's try this approach and and move on and try to address uh, positively i think what a what a christian metaphysical position but also a christian epistemological position would entail what kinds of things do we need to begin to discuss when we're thinking this way and um, as i say in the beginning of the book um, uh, van til's influence is on every page i don't i don't quote him as much because i'm i'm dealing with things that uh, weren't specific to his uh, concerns sure. but but you can't you can't read the book and think that um, that Van Til's influence hasn't been uh, expressed on every page there. So I start from the creator creature distinction as a metaphysical premise. That is that there's it's it's not a monistic assumption of being or of uh, that that ultimate reality has some sort of impersonal character, as is often uh, discussed, or even that ultimate reality from from perspective of many uh, philosophers who call themselves Christians and may be Christians, um, that there is God. And then, as Van Inwagen himself says, there are a bunch of other uncreated things. And then from that, we can move uh, to a notion of creation. Uh, That just doesn't wash uh, in terms of uh, Christian orthodoxy, that there is God and there is creation and there is nothing in between. There's no uh, abstract um, uh, er arena of uh, platonic uh, ideas up there that you, uh, from which God Himself has to choose, or alongside of God, or anything like that. A plenum. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, some sort of fullness up there that 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 God Himself is is kind of um, existing with, or however they want to put it. Uh, but instead, it's either Creator or it's creature, and and then I begin to explore how how we ought to think about those kinds of things, and that that moves me into different areas, um, dealing trying to deal specifically. With, I think, uh, one of the primary problems in in apologetics and and philosophy of religion, the problem of evil, working through planning as uh, free will defense and then trying to articulate what I think is a better reformed free will defense that doesn't uh, presuppose libertarian freedom. So it's got all of that wrapped up into it, and then in in the midst of some of that, um, I I introduce um, what what you've called Christian essentialism, a a kind of notion of God that I I think is helpful in articulating some of these things.
0: Mm. Yeah, uh, before we get right into into that distinction that we're going to make inside of Christian essentialism, uh who are who are some of the big players in doctrine of God out there? And I, I I'm I'm curious to see if there are any helpful non-reformed people that 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 you enjoy reading or that you've found useful uh in in discussing this. You've mentioned uh Van Inwagen. Um I don't know how reformed as she is teaching at Notre Dame, but are there people out there, uh Roman Catholics or or otherwise that are helpful on some of these discussions?
1: Well, I think, um, generally speaking, I, I would say this without, um, without going into the negatives. Um, I think that, you know, the, the best stuff out there on doctrine of God by and large is the Catholic material. Um, they, that, you know, the interesting thing about philosophy of religion from my perspective, and this, you know, there, there are a number of reasons for this, that some of which would be obvious is that, um, virtually all protestant philosophers um are reticent at best to bring in uh biblical material into their discussion some will do it kind of dismissively but but by and large they don't want to they don't want to deal with those sorts of things they they, they tend to want to stay in the area of neutrality mm-hmm. catholic philosophers uh eleanor stump and and uh and and people like her Uh, are uh, very comfortable and quick to bring in uh, uh, ideas of the Incarnation. Stump has a wonderful article, Metaphysics of the Incarnation. Uh, I don't agree with, with everything, but the interesting point is they'll bring in revelational material at the beginning if they want to. And I think one of the reasons for that is because they see their philosophy as squarely located within their theology However, that's uh, expressed, and there are issues there that that um, I think need some discussion. But but Protestants see it more as a, as a neutral kind of uh, you know me and my brain sort of thing. Yeah. And and um, so in in terms of doctrine of God, uh, you know the 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 best stuff out there. And I, I want to qualify that by saying, obviously, it's going to have it's going to have some some issues that we have to address as Reformed Christians. But the best stuff out there tends to be in the in the Catholic
0: context. Mm. I find it very peculiar that when we approach uh, philosophy and particularly philosophy of religion, the tendency is to pretend as if we're not Christians. I don't know if that's in order to receive acceptance in the broader community or whatnot, but it it just sounds so peculiar. So your approach and reasons for faith is very refreshing. And for those who who see themselves in a Vantillian tradition, uh, it should come as natural that we are not going to in a sense, methodologically rule out our, our, our God that we're seeking to prove just in the very way that we uh, approach the subject. If we approach it with a sense of neutrality, trying to do it without presupposing God's revelation and who he is as he has revealed himself, we're, we're doomed right from the start. And I find it very frustrating uh, when we read Protestant philosophy and, and others. Uh, and that's what's so strange uh, for us to read some of these Roman Catholics who aren't as afraid to do that sort of thing. Granted, they have other issues.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, I, you know, my, my hope still is that there, there would be somebody out there who is a philosopher, maybe even training in philosophy right now, who has a strong Reformed theological base. Right. And who could be, begin to develop a, a truly reformed Christian philosophy? Because I think there's a crying need for that. That that would that would fill a a, a massive gap. And um, you know, th- whoever did that would virtually stand alone for a while. Hmm. And and I, I think it's uh, I think it's it's time it's time for that sort of thing to be to be developed. Um, we need somebody who has the philosophical skills, but also. Uh, more importantly i think the theological foundation so that they're not going to move from that foundation in the development of a of a strong reformed christian philosophy
0: absolutely now um this is give you a little background of of my crazy life but uh and this gets into our subject but i tried reading the the westminster pre-seminary reading list before actually coming to westminster and i i got through it uh, one of the books on there was Lewis Burkhoff's systematic theology which carl truman says is he calls it the little blue sleeping pill now <laughs> thousand pages. And, uh, because it was on the list in my, in my, uh, vigor, I guess, or stupidity, I had to put myself on a 10 page a day plan just to get through it. Cause it was tough, but I got through it in three months. And, um, and Truman has since said anyone who's read that thing cover to cover it has to be out of their mind. So that that I think is appropriate. But the yeah, reason well, we, I br- can, we
1: can talk about the pathology <laughs> of church historians, if you want to, but we can talk happen.
0: about that too. Yeah. yeah. But uh, and and students who who decide to read burkhoff cover to cover. But um, the reason I bring that up is he uh, presents what is a tr- traditional approach to do- speaking of doctrine of God, speaking of God's attributes, uh, and he's not uh, alone here. Uh, this is. You open any systematic theology book, you'll probably find language referring to God's communicable and incommunicable attributes. Um, do you find that distinction helpful, and what, uh, if any, are its limitations?
1: Yeah, I think it, it can be helpful. It's it's a fairly standard way uh, to approach it, and, and when I'm when I'm teaching doctrine of God, I I uh, introduce those concepts. Um, I, I think, first of all, let me say that that I don't think any of the approaches out there um, are, are the approach uh, that, that is over and above any other approach. Um, they all have their strengths and they all have their weaknesses because it's so difficult to try to communicate these things uh, in, in a way that's going to be um, clear on the one hand. Once you try to summarize the attributes of God under a particular head, um, there, there are always going to be your, your, uh, compromises and, and um, different ways of thinking that are, are going to have to move into that discussion. For example, on communicable, incommunicable, y- the initial impression would be that God communicates some of his attributes and then some he, is not, he doesn't uh, communicate, whereas, as a matter of fact, any attribute that God has is incommunicable in the sense that whatever uh, we have that is like that, can't be in any way identical to that. So it's not that the attribute itself is communicated, it's that there's an analogical representation, what I'd call an iconic representation, that is the image of God as we are uh, represents those sorts of things, but the attribute itself can't be communicated. That doesn't mean the categories are, are bad, it just means you've got to qualify just about everything you say because of the complexity of who God is.
0: Yeah, I think and Burkhoff does that help he he explains yeah. that but this is where the Protestant scholastics are so helpful mm-hmm. um in terms of archetypal and ectypal uh knowledge but also we can speak of God's attributes there we love and that's a communicable attribute but we don't love and we are not love in the sense that God is i mean yeah, that's, that's identical right. with him but that's an example of a communicable attribute but we always have to be careful how we speak of those communicating to us
2: Yeah yeah I think and, that's right and yet they come from his spirit and, and it is his love and his joy and his peace that he is um, sharing with us, right? I mean, exactly. in a very real sense, we just don't have it uh, the way he has it in, in all of its infinite perfection. And hmm.
0: Now, um, you, you present uh, something, you use covenant theology to, to give us a different perspective uh, and I think a very helpful perspective on, on the doctrine of God um, Obviously he is a covenantal God and it's important for us to understand it that way, to understand him that way. But what, what is the distinction that you present uh, in terms of speaking of God's attributes and how does that relate to covenant theology?
1: Yeah, well, one of the things I, um, I I came at this in a number of different um, ways with a number of different uh, concerns, both in apologetics and, and in systematic theology. Um, For example, I, I, uh, when, I, when I first read uh, Michael Martin's uh, edited work, The Impossibility of God, where he um, ha- collects a group of people to argue against um, the existence of God, and notice that in, in a, a vast majority of those arguments, um, the existence of God is, is not um, accepted because of what uh, some of the authors call uh, the problem of the compatibility of God's attributes. That is, that God cannot be, for example, both immutable and creator. And um, one of the arguments is, um, because these are incompatible, and there's no way to make sense of these, uh, that that God can't exist, at least this kind of God can't exist. Now, that's an interesting argument, I thought, because what these these people are doing in Martin's book, by and large, is they're getting on our ground and saying, hey, you, you affirm this of God, that he's immutable, you also affirm that he's creator. You've got some problems there that you, you have to work out, and they're so uh, serious that um, we can't even accept the fact that a god like this would exist unless you have a way of of articulating that. Now they're not quite that friendly about it, but that's that's basically what they're saying. They're they're trying to trying to say God doesn't exist based on uh, incompatible attributes. Uh, so that's the apologetic side of it. <clears throat> the systematic theology side of it has a number of different um, aspects to it. And, uh, I guess one of the things that, that got me started thinking in, in that line was not just open theism generally, but, um, I've, I've tried to follow, um, um, Clark Pennick, uh, for a while, partly because it's, it's such an, an interesting thing to follow because he changes every week. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it, you never, you never, uh, never a dull moment trying to follow Pennick. Um, but you know, I, I remember his book that came out a while back, um, uh, most moved mover and uh, you know it, it, you can see what he's trying to do there um, argue against the unmoved mover kind of idea which I have some sympathies for I want to argue against that in the way that it's articulated uh, typically um, but it it um, it got me to thinking about uh, some of the issues in systematic theology as well and um, as I was reading through uh, and and a couple of other of the open theists and also doing my own study in Doctrine of God, um, I did have some sympathies, um, just to, I'll need to qualify this, but some sympathies with the way that some of the Reformed folk try to talk about God's uh, character and, and his uh, attributes um, with respect to creation. Uh, just, just to give you one example that's uh, on the top of my head, uh, one that I've used Often because I think it's uh, it, it says it so clearly in uh, in paul helm's book john calvin's ideas Helm is um, uh wanting to articulate what he thinks is calvin's view on some of these things, and in that articulation uh toward the back of that book uh dealing i think particularly with the atonement, if I remember right in that chapter uh helm Helm says um and again he's he's wanting to articulate calvin's view Helm says that uh, that we don 't we don 't move uh, from uh, wrath to grace with regard to our salvation that 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 can 't be the case because if that were the case, then God would change from wrath to grace mm-hmm. but rather we move from our belief that we 're under wrath to our belief that we 're under grace and that's that 's the movement of salvation <laughs> now um, you know you you read that and um, you know i I just remember the first time I read that I said that there's something deeply wrong there. Oh yes. It, number one is the articulating Calvin properly. That's a question we don't need to get into here. I have some serious questions about that. But number two, um, let's say Helm is right. Then, then is it the case that our belief that we're under wrath doesn't match the way things really are? I mean, exactly. that's. In right. one sense, that's what Helm's saying. It doesn't match reality. It's not the case, really, but we believe this because this is what Scripture enjoins us to believe, and then we believe something else when we're saved. And you see, I, I, I appreciate what Helm's trying to do. He's trying to protect, the, well, he, you know, the eternity and immutability of God. Okay, this is that, a
0: helpful understanding of – this is where a, hel, a healthy understanding of Van Til's limiting concepts yeah. can be so useful. Yeah, that's exactly I mean, he, right. He's letting one attribute of God just obliterate the others.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and then you know, if you if you move to, to um to, to Muller's description in uh in his you know, in his great volume, especially volumes three and four, I'm thinking here on, on God, uh his triunity in volume four and his essence and attributes in volume three, Muller says that um that the Reformed always um, had the ontological priority uh, foremost in their minds when they came to passages of scripture so that they would Interpret passages with that priority, and I think to myself, okay, that's a good thing. But but how do we begin to negotiate the ontological priority relative to God's relationship to creation? How do we, you know, to put it in, in in the way we're talking about Helm? How do we um, protect the biblical understanding of immutability? and also realize that we are really under wrath that God has an attitude and a disposition of wrath toward those who are in, in Adam and of grace toward those who are in Christ. Right. And as as we began to think about that as I began to think about that from both an apologetic and a, um, a systematic theological perspective, um I I well a couple of things happened. Number 1, I started thinking okay the the issue here really is God's relationship to creation, that's, that's where things begin to go awry. In every, in every theological position, this is the basic fundamental problem in the debates between the Reformed and the Arminians, um, certainly in the, in the discussions of um, philosophy of religion and, and the way that they try to articulate things. It, it always has to do with creation and God's relationship to creation. So, so then I ask myself, where do we find the clearest example of God's relationship to creation, we find that in the person of Christ,
0: uh, mm-hmm.
1: and and so then then I began to think, well, the, the way we need to approach theology proper then is first of all to have a solid Christological foundation, and then to begin to see how that relates to covenant history uh, itself, from from Genesis in, into Revelation, and then we can begin to articulate how God relates to creation, and this this has to do with his, not only his attributes, but what I call his properties, which I think are broader than attributes, so it has to do with what properties God takes on, and how he takes those on, in his relationship to creation, and what that means with respect to who God is as God, so uh, who God is, as I say, who God is essentially on the one hand, and who God is covenantally on the other hand, and how we begin then to see those things biblically so so so, my view is um, if if you have uh if you want to have a discussion about the relationship of God to creation, start first with Christology, and I think you can start with historic Christology, uh give it um, I think some proper reformed emphases, and move from that to theology proper, and you can address some of those questions then I think more helpfully because you have the the paradigm, if I can put it that way in the person of Christ himself.
2: Mm, Absolutely. And that's what Paul's doing in Colossians when he says um, that he created all things through him, right? Speaking specifically of Christ, that even creation finds its origin in the son as well as in the father. But then also
0: in order to interact with creation, God, uh, namely the son takes on properties and attributes that he did not have prior. And so that, so in that sense, they are covenantal because they're, they're uh regarding his relationship to creation, they're outside of himself, uh directed toward creation, rather than who God is in say. He doesn't he doesn't have to be incarnate in say. Uh he, he does not have a human nature from all eternity, but he takes those things on in his relation to creation.
1: Yeah. That's exactly right. And and I think that see when you begin to think that way Let's let's take just just uh, as you articulate it there. Uh, the basic premise of the incarnation is not, and I think you know this is where sometimes, um, at least in my experience, in evangelical uh, in evangelicals generally, there's some confusion. Incarnation is not uh, combining two natures to make a person. Ooh. That's that's how it's thought of sometimes, and you know that's it's it's too loose. Uh, you, you can't think that way. The incarnation is the person of the Son of God remaining the person of the Son of God while taking on a human nature which then has, in the hypostatic union, personal qualities, <clears throat> not because the human nature is personal, but because the Son of God is. And in doing that, he doesn't become a new person. No. Or we'd, have a, we'd have a quadrinity. There'd, there'd be Father, Son, Spirit, and Christ. He's the same person, but now with real attributes that he didn't have prior to taking on this human nature. Now, now, think about what, what all of that means in, in, in terms of, of the incarn- Incarnation. It means that you locate it, number one, in the person. And I think here's where the Reformed and the debates with the Reformed and the Lutherans were, were uh, that, at least those debates were helpful because the Reformed always said that we have to understand uh, the Incarnation and the, and the natures of Christ in concreto, that is, in concrete, relative to the person, not in abstracta, that is, relative to the natures. So you don't, you, you don't think of this abstractly. You think of the person of the Son of God really and truly taking on uh, created attributes, if I can put it that way, yeah. covenantal attributes, and remaining who he is all the while. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, that's, you know, that, is, that is the climactic covenantal expression of God's relationship to creation. So now you have the Son of God with real created properties. So that when he says the Son of Man doesn't know when he's going to return, only the Father. He's not pretending there. He's not saying he's not saying that with a wink, you know, I really do know. He's saying, I really don't know. And yet, as we articulate it theologically, of course he knows. He decreed it as the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And you have both of these things working together in the incarnation, and, and the church has always affirmed that these things have to work together in this way in one person, that he's not schizophrenic, he's one person, yet he's one person with two complete natures. Yes. Now, if you, if you think of that redemptive historically, that's what's going on in the entirety of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, God, as as the Westminster Confession says, chapter 7, section 1, God voluntarily condescends and what is that condescension uh, again it's not it's it's a it's a metaphor it's a spatial metaphor but it doesn't mean that god locates himself some place where he wasn't previously because god is everywhere but he locates himself in a particular way and as there's a mode of locating himself and that mode of locating himself has to do with the taking on of covenantal properties that is properties that now relate him really and truly To creation. So that as he relates himself to creation, he never ceases to be who he is. He remains who he is. And yet he takes on now covenantal, created properties in order to interact with us. This is what God's condescension is. And as the confession says, section one, uh, he has been pleased to express this by way of covenant.
0: Right. Right. So this
1: is where I began to think about uh, covenantal is creational, is relational, and is real and is true. So so that um, God doesn't just pretend to interact with us. He really does interact with us in a sincere way by taking on these properties, uh, yet never at any time, like Christ, never at any time giving up who he essentially is as God. Hmm.
2: Now, would it be right if, if you were seeking to answer the question, how does, God, how does God the Son take a human nature to himself and not change, to take that idea of, of God's covenant dealings with his people and rooting that in the decree and saying he doesn't change because he decrees that and whatever he decrees, um, that's going to come to pass. So it, would it be right to do that and take it back to the decree?
1: Yeah, I I am doing that a bit um in in this book that I'm working on um on on divine attributes. Uh certainly you want to affirm the pactum salutis. You want to say that that is uh that is a part of God's condescension in the way I'm in the way I'm thinking about it because when uh Father, Son, Holy Spirit uh decree to um to bring about what whatever whatsoever comes to pass, to control whatsoever comes to pass, uh in in that decree in in that decree itself is condescension god is saying i am decreeing i'm making the decision now to relate myself uh, for eternity not just in in history but for eternity to relate myself to creation right but right. but i think we can also go behind that and say even in that relationship or or even prior to that decree if we can put it that way and i don't think it's wrong to put it that way because scripture right. talks uh, that way as well um even prior to that decree uh, we root his immutability in his character yep. and we root his essential character in uh, primarily in the revelation of his names um as as muller points out this is the way the reformed have typically done it and i think it's exactly the way it has to be done and i think one of the reasons that even in some reform context there's been a kind of disparity that's probably too too strong but at least there's been a you uh, know you know a uh, a kind of um suppression of metaphysics, Uh, one of the reasons for that is because we haven't been quick to understand God's names as a revelation of his essential character, at least in in some of those uh, aspects of his name, and then in doing that to see that as the ontological ground for everything else that we need to say about God. So let me try to put it this way. We don't define God, first of all, relationally. We define God, first of all, in terms of who he is as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit,
0: absolutely. And yes. then
1: after that, in relation to creation, so even
0: when even when he has thought of us prior to creation, what you've said, even when his knowledge, when the object of his knowledge is not himself, in say that in it, that is a condescension. We've already entered into covenantal uh, territory, if you will.
1: Yeah, I think we have, and you know, this gets into very uh, deep and complex issues. But you know, how God thinks about possibility and, and His natural will versus His free will, his natural knowledge versus free knowledge, and all those kinds of things come into this. But I think uh, fundamentally, once God relates Himself to something odd, extra that is outside mm-hmm. of Himself, He is covenantally relating at that point, and even in has, thought. That's right. And it has to do, I think, um, my view that I'm holding to now until I can be convinced otherwise, my view is that that has to relate to God's voluntary condescension, meaning in, in, um, in systematic theological categories, his free will.
2: Mm. But you would not go so far as Ralph Smith to say God is in covenant with himself ontologically, the persons of the Godhead.
1: No, I don't see any. Um, I don't see any contractual obligations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Essentially, I think that's I think that's a, think that's a mis, uh, misapplication of categories.
0: Well, part of that is is the way you would go about not you, but in general, one would go about defining covenant. And if you define it simply as relational, yeah. we certainly would say God is relational in say in the Trinity. But that's not that's not to say that He is covenantal right. in Himself. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but he continent. is in the Pactum Salutis, at, not not in say but he does become covenantal between the members of the Trinity
1: after. Yeah, the to
2: create the actual work of redemption.
1: Yeah, no no question about it. But see, that's why I think you have to ground the covenant again, as Confession 7-1 says, in God's voluntary condescension. Right. And I think right. all covenantal relations have to be related to his free will. And the relationship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is always to his necessary will, not to his free will. So you can't ground that covenantally.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's
0: helpful. Now, now shifting back toward uh, Christology, because that's where we want to head. Um i thinking of the Chalcedonian formulation and how uh, important and crucial that is to our understanding that the, the two natures of Christ are, are united and now inseparable, that we can't mix them or confuse the two, uh, that we have one person with two natures, uh, human and divine. Uh, and we see so many problems arising uh, out of when we fail to to uh, accept that or let that drive our theology. I think of some Bardianism. I, I've been reading uh, some Rahner lately and though Rahner affirms the Chalcedonian formula, he still has this Hegelian philosophy and, and and there seems to be this blurring of the human and the divine or melding them together and in, in fact where there's an eschatology where they head toward a, a, a metaphysical union, if you will, in some strange sense. Um what do you what do you think about uh the The human and the divine, as it relates in christ uh and can that be a model for us when we speak of let's say uh doctrine of scripture or other or other areas
1: yeah um that's that's a huge question, as you know there's so much to say there um let let me say first of all that I think it is uh of fundamental importance maybe not not recognized. Um, as well as it should be, uh, to have our Christological foundations uh, set set squarely um, according to Scripture, because the temptation in all of us is going to be to try to to, to muffle one side of that um, for the sake of the other. Uh, we 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 may become a bit squeamish and you, you can see this in the history of theology, of course, squeamish when, when Jesus says he, he doesn't know something or, um, it, when scripture says that he grew in wisdom, uh, and, in, in his, in his relationship to God uh, or, you know, qu- uh, quintessentially, I think when you see Jesus in the garden, you you want to try to, to gloss that a bit or you have a, you have a kind of temptation to want to do that. And unless you understand uh, number one, the mystery of it all. the wonderful mystery of it all this isn 't something that should make us squirm. This is something that should make us worship unless you understand the wonderful mystery of that you're going you 're going to want to try to submerge part of that uh, so um, I, I was just reading you mentioned Bart I was just reading uh, recently another article by uh, McCormick on Christ and the decree and um, you know it's it 's um i don 't want to be mean spirited here but it's flabbergasting to me. Um, that the the argument that he gives can take place, uh, number one, without real, um, how should I say this, without understanding how radically diverse it is from the entirety of Christology, of Mm -hmm. the Christological tradition, both Catholic and Protestant. So that ought to give you some pause, at least make you a bit careful. Number two, if you're going to radically depart, you better have exegetical foundations for what you're saying, and you don't see an ounce of that. Uh, that I've seen anywhere in, uh, in in these Bardian scholars, and yet Bart is all the rage again. Um, why is he all the rage? Well, a lot of reasons for that. Partly because you can you can uh, sound profound when you're not saying uh, very much anyway, and also because I think you know in a postmodern context, um, what you have in in, in Bart is is a sort of relativism that's going to going to attract um, uh, post evangelicals, post conservatives kind of thing you see in John Frankie's new book.
2: Mm-hmm. But um, and an ecumenicity. What's that? And an ecumenicity that it's sort of all embracing.
1: Yeah, that's right. But but the price you pay for that is a rejection of orthodoxy, both Catholic and Protestant. And and so I, I think you've got to be very careful in those kinds of things. But uh why is it that, that that McCormick and Barton, these guys want to move in this direction? Well partly because it's it's so difficult for us to articulate just how it could be that two natures uh, could function in one person. And, of course, that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, I, I, think, yeah. unle- I think unless we unless we immediately uh, run to, to Romans 11, to 36, oh, the depth of the riches, of the wisdom and knowledge of God, unless we see that as a conclusion to our, our theological um, understanding, we're, we're not doing theology. We're, we're involved in some sort of academic enterprise that's not going to be Helpful to the church. So, for, first of all, get get your your Christology uh, firmly grounded. Once you begin to do that, then I think you see um, how that's going to relate now to what God does in covenant history. Uh, for example, when when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in, in John John chapter eight, you know how it goes. Uh, you know, we're children of Abraham. We're we're born uh, from Abraham. We're you know we're we're of good stock. Uh, you know, check <laughs> check our genealogy, and you'll see why we're saved. And Jesus, Jesus is saying, um, you know, you don't understand this because uh, your, your, your father is the devil. It's not Abraham. And, you know, who do you think you are? And what does Jesus say? Before Abraham was,
0: yeah,
1: I am. I am. Yeah. Now, you, you know, you read the commentaries on that, at least the, the Reformed writers, and, and most of them, almost all of them uh, say explicitly, what's Jesus claiming here? He's claiming that he was on the mountain with Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So what is Exodus chapter 3? It, it is a proleptic Christological appearance. Yeah. It's the appearance of the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, who is in fact the Lord himself, condescending in order to communicate with Moses about the deliverance of children of Israel from Egypt. Now, So you begin to see then that the Old Testament is Christological at its core. That, that 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 the logos is there all along as condescended and is interacting uh with his people and and speaking with his representatives and and, and so now, now you know at least from my now the bible uh, has this vast christological impetus behind it which in in reform context we've always known but i think now it's it comes to to uh, to the fore as well in our understanding of of who God is, and and we begin to think about it in those categories. And some of the um, tensions that uh, we've tried to resolve, that is, we in the church have tried to resolve various ways, some of those those things now have their locus rather in Christology instead of having a locus just in the essential character of God. I hope you can see the difference there. Uh, Rather than trying to... Um, say uh, with with Helm, we have to we have to think about wrath and grace according to the essential character of God as yeah. immutable or as eternal. No, we think about wrath and grace according to the covenantal character of God expressed climactically in Christ, but seen throughout covenant history. Right. And now, God being wrathful is no different than Jesus in the temple, and God being gracious is no different than Jesus saying, "Come to me, all you who are weary." So you begin to see how this works itself out in redemptive history and all all of it from beginning to end is Christological. You know, Absolutely. it's
2: inter- it's interesting that you've said all this because we've discussed a lot on the forum the need for biblical theology. We're all very redemptive historical, but we love systematic theology and the weakness that I think we've seen in a lot of men in the reformed church, and maybe it's just more last 150 years, but it's this sort of looking at systematic categories, looking at attributes of God as separate from the covenantal work of God in Christ and it it seems like that's why biblical theology is so important understanding redemptive history you know yeah, in its, no, its no place, question together it, with systematics
1: yeah i think that's exactly right and i i think you know if there's one if there's one tendency in in uh, in in redemptive historical understandings that that can cause problems and has caused problems as we as we've seen is that it can be become too quickly Anti-metaphysical, or, um, or to put it another way, yeah, speculative. Or, or you or put it another way, you could you can you can talk all about diversity without ever getting to the unity.
0: Yeah, right. And,
1: and right. this is this is where uh, Camden, you were asking about the implication of this doctrine of scripture, and I, I think there are implications in terms of doctrine of scripture. I think you got. I think you have to be very careful. If you're going to use any kind of incarnational analogy, that 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 doesn't—you have to recognize that doesn't go very far. Number one, number two, if you're going to use that analogy, you must emphasize as well that Christ is one person. There's yeah. a unity there, and right. see, I, I think what is missing oftentimes in people who want to claim a Voss or some kind of um, biblical theological perspective on the Bible, what's missing oftentimes is the unity aspect. Hmm. All you have is the multi. You don't have the unity. And what is the unity? For Voss, it was the organic character of Scripture Absolutely. that brought all of this diversity into a unity. So that yeah. so that even, even Muller uses um, a phraseology. I think he's quoting one of the uh, Protestant scholastics talking about uh, Scripture's essential character as the Word of God. And mm. then... Uh, from that, its contingent character is written by human. So there's a priority there. It's not side by side. It's not right. divine and human. And Jesus is not just divine and human. He is ontologically first, essentially divine, mm-hmm. contingently covenantal human. Uh, so is uh, Scripture in that way. And so Scripture. That's I th- think why the. Westminster Divine say, um, you know, Scripture's one author is God. You've got to get that firmly embedded in your mind and in your hermeneutic and in your biblical theology, or the rest of it is nothing more than uh, relativism.
0: Right. It seems that we want to make, or oftentimes people who make these parallels, uh, you know, in the, the post-evangelical, post, post-conservative post uh, vein of people, they don't push it uh along the lines of the Chalcedonian formula or along the lines of a traditional Reformed orthodoxy. They want to make the parallels in a sense where it's convenient for certain moves and it explains certain things, but we always have to affirm the priority of the divine, always, and the unity, as you've said. I was just, I've been working on a lesson for church on the Westminster Confession 1-9, and it Mm -hmm. speaks of Scripture. as It says, which is not manifold, but one. Yeah, and the reason yeah. we can have an uh, uh, an analogy of scripture an analogy of faith is because we know ultimately that God is the primary author he's the divine author and he's not divided yeah and so and that's what's underneath all of this and it's important to maintain that
1: exactly and, and I think there's been you know there's been a a, a proper reaction uh, in some quarters against uh, a systematic theologizing that overplays the unity and is, sure. is, is so uh, emphatic about the unity. But, you know, I just want to make an announcement here. Those days are gone. Nobody's doing that anymore. Yeah. That's not an For- issue anymore. What we yeah. have now is such an emphasis on diversity and multi and many that we're missing any kind of unifying element. And once we begin to miss that, um I, I think it's it's destructive to the church. I think we get involved in a, in a good bit of mush that's not going to be helpful to the people in the pews, much less to the people trying to preach the Bible.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Oliphant, for joining us. This has been a great discussion, as always. We would expect nothing less from you, and we uh, hope that people really enjoyed this. So thanks thanks for taking time this morning to come on.
1: Great to be with you guys. Thank you both.
0: Yeah, well, I want to point people back to uh, feedingonchrist.com if you'd like to read more from Nick. He's uh, put up a great post on something, uh, uh, you know, some Google Books and some other projects that people are doing uh, for good old Reformed Theology. I also want to let people know about our website. If you haven't been there already, reformedforum.org. There you can find all of our posts, all of our other programs that we do, uh, and links to all sorts of resources there. And if you would like to leave us a voicemail, if you have a question or a comment, please send it to 440 440- 097 forum we thank everybody for listening we hope you join us again next time on christ the center